Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, a postdoc at Duke University and host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Saeed Adirinto about his new book, Animality and Colonial Subjecthood in Africa, The Human and Non-Human Creatures of Nigeria, published by Ohio University Press earlier this year. Dr. Adaderento is currently a professor of history and African and African diaspora studies at Florida International University. He was previously a professor at Western Carolina University. Dr. Adaderento, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so to start, I'd like to give you the chance to introduce yourself. Um, how did you become interested in history more broadly? Um, and since this isn't your first book, um, also feel free to sort of share how you became interested in the topic of animals and animal-human relations in colonial Nigeria. Oh, thank you so much for that uh, good question. Uh, I studied history at the University of Ibadan. Uh, between 1999 and 2004. And uh, interest in the in animal history began when I was writing my book on, on guns. Um, I saw a lot of references to the history of animals in the narratives of guns. And most of these references focused on the use of guns for hunting. But it was clear to me very early that that um, a scholarship or a book focusing only on animals within the context of hunting would be inadequate. So I decided to expand the frontier of scholarship by not only talking about um, about uh, about animals within the context of hunting, but looking at the interface, the, the entanglement between animals and humans in history. Um, so as will soon be clear to our listeners, you know, your book delves into multiple species, um, but 
Outside of a look at the history of zoos and conservation, um, as well as political cartoons in Nigeria, um, the book mostly focuses on horses, donkeys, dogs, and cows. Um, so my question here is one of kind of methods and sources. Kind of what focused you, or, or what led you to kind of um, focus on this set of animals? You know, was it your own kind of personal interest, or was it the questions they raised, or just sort of a matter of the source material? Um, and I'm also curious if there are any other animals you considered including in the book that you ultimately didn't end up using. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, your historical research is about availability of sources as much as about individual choices of scholars. But to a large extent, it's about availability of sources because uh, we can't make things up. Uh, we can only produce knowledge, historical knowledge, uh, within the parameters of available sources. So as I emphasized in the introduction of the book, uh, documentation on each category of animals was informed by the symbolic materiality of each animal. So, you know, that is the impact that each animal had on core infrastructure of all of colonial political economy. And this should not surprise us. You know, this is not surprising. Uh, even in issues related solely to humans, documentations always favored aspects that were deeply related to everyday running of the colonial state. So the book's choices on animals helped me to affirm or to establish the core argument of the book that animals were colonial subjects in, uh, you know, in Nigeria or were subjects of British colonialism. Uh, in addition, my book is a parent monograph. So it's actually designed to serve as a uh, to give birth to new micro-studies or scholarships that are much more narrow in the history of, of animals. So the point and emphasis is that the scope is wide and uh, without losing the central argument or you know the central ideas that runs through the entire book. And each chapter is therefore structured uh, to serve as a springboard to new works on the entanglement between humans and animals in Nigerian history and African history broadly defined. So would it be fair to say that you sort of ended up focusing on animals that where there's sort of the most sort of animal uh, human interface during the colonial period? Uh, with the, the animals with the highest form of interface with humans, as well as the animals that had symbolic and, uh, you know, high symbolic and uh, material uh, interface with the core infrastructures of colonial power. So it, it's not just about the amount or the level of the relationship that animals have with humans. It also includes the ways in which the animals that I focused on uh, fractured or shaped the nature of human encounter with colonialism and the core infrastructure of colonial state. So it, it doesn't, some animals were left out, not because they were not part of a daily engagement with humans, but if those animals did not shape notions of power and subjectivity in colonial Nigeria, then there's no point. They don't generate significant data or documentation. And because they don't generate significant documentation, 
then 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 they may not show up in the book it doesn't the fact that there's no evidence does not mean something did not happen uh, and that is why i said at the beginning that the book is a parent monograph that is designed to give birth to newer and narrower studies that will shape the frontier of knowledge not only in the general history of animals and humans in history within the context of colonial nigeria and but also within the broader field in Africa and beyond. Mm. All right, so let's get into the book. Um, you start off looking at the history of the beef industry in Nigeria. Um, and here I'll share, you know, I found this particularly interesting since on my first trip to Nigeria, one of the things that struck me was just sort of how much cheaper beef was compared to chicken, which, you know, of course, is quite the opposite um, in the U.S., so how did Nigeria become, as you put it, a meaty colony? Um, so one thing I would like to emphasize before I get into this question is that uh, in addition to writing animals into Nigerian history, my book also makes a clear statement about the history of Nigerian footways or footpathways. In some ways, or in many ways, uh, the book is a contribution to Nigeria's culinary history, which is an underexplored aspect of Nigerian history. Uh, to be sure, beef wasn't the most important meat or protein supply of most Nigerians before the imposition of colonial rule. Many communities depended on fish and, of course, small game animals for their protein uh, supply. Uh, immediately after the imposition of British rule, uh, cattle capitalism emerged, and I define cattle capitalism as the ways in which the British figure out that they could actually make a lot of money from cattle, uh, that is, cows raised solely for business transaction. So they turned the trade cattle into a colonial commodity and invested heavily in it. You know, one of the biggest investments that they made was in veterinary medicine. You know, they began to put a lot of money to build veterinary medicine as uh, an important harm of colonial capitalism. You know, they built abattoirs, they constructed new uh, railway wagons to transport cattle, you know, meat regulations, uh, you know. They were actually dedicated cattle routes, you know, what they call cattle tracks, where cattle were expected to pass or must pass, you know, you know. So, so, and of course, they also exported ice and skin. The point in emphasis is that, that in turning trade cattle into an, into a significant harm of colonial capitalism, the British directly shaped the food ways of Nigerians in, in ways that is just incredible not only because Nigerians did not, not only because meat or, or beef was not the most important meat that most people were consuming, but also because it was meant to generate significant wealth for the colonial state. So with time, preferences began to change. The kind of meat people were eating began, <coughs> began to change. And this also happened within the framework of urbanization. You know, as forest lands evaporated or were destroyed to give way to concrete and built environment, uh, the, the natural homes of game animals sublimed. And the... Uh, and reliance on commercial meat to feed the expanding urban population also increased. So new laws are preventing the raising of 
domestic animals emerge in places like Lagos, Port Harcourt, Ibadan, you couldn't raise goat or sheep in, in series, you know, because of the assumption that domesticated animals, you know, dented the dialectics of the urban modernities. So for the first time, my book connects deforestation with food history, you know, and centers urbanization and built environment as intricate components of the interaction between humans and animals in history. Your second chapter um, turns then to horses and donkeys, um, particularly for their role as tools for British imperial conquest and then subsequent colonization. Um, And in a sense, your argument, if I understand it correctly, is that uh, these were sort of the two most essential animals for colonialism. So kind of how did you come to that conclusion? Uh, Thank you for that question. So my my book is not the first to write about horses in West African history. Uh, Robin Law's book, which focused on the pre-colonial era in the entire of West Africa, actually was about... uh, or is about the history of horses in pre-colonial Africa, focusing mostly on military history. However, my book is the first to explain the transformation of the horse identity under imperial rule. It's the first to engage with how an instrument of conquest became a symbol of domination. So, you know, before the imposition of imperial rules, horses were used as war animals. They were combatants at war. After colonial conquest, they were primarily the means of transportation, you know, helping the colonialists with mobility as they administer their vast territories. You know, horsemanship or the inability to ride horse was even a significant element of colonial masculinity. You know, the best colonial officer should be able to ride horse, ride horses. I mean, if you can ride horse, then you don't qualify to be a colonial officer. You know, so all colonial officers were expected to be good horse riser. Uh, it's also important to note that the colonial army, uh, known as the Royal West African Frontier Force, maintained uh, a mounted cavalry, you know, a kind of uh, a, a regiment, a, a kind of horse regiment within the colonial army all, all the way until the 1920s. So the horses were still used for military operation even after the conquest of the area that would later be known as Nigeria. Nigeria. However, it was in the in, it was in racing, you know, us racing and rubber, you know, us practical using celebrating power that actually transformed the role of horses in Nigeria in new ways. You know, these two recreational activities became important instrument of colonial domination. You know, the us performed power on the on the top in in, in in ceremonial procession that legitimized imperialism. So without the us there was there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be anything like Dober, you know, or us racing. So my book positioned us or the us as the most important factor in the history of colonial spectacle that and also emphasized the indispensable role that non-human creatures played in, in colonial uh, ideology in the entrenchment of colonial ideology. So, what is true about the horse is also correct in in the case of the donkey. You know, the donkey was uh, was the number one pack animal uh, in in colonial Nigeria. It was used in transporting heavy 
materials, solid materials, agricultural produce from the site of production or mining to the rail, railway track. So what I try to do in the chapter on horses and donkey is to look at how colonialism transformed the identities of these animals in, in ways that aided colonial power, whether it is in pure capitalist form, as we see in the case of the donkey, or in uh, in the kind of symbolic form that's that helped to to uh, to to that helped to entrench the ideologies of imperial domination. Now let's turn to your third and fifth chapters, um, which sort of both look at the history of dogs in colonial Nigeria. Um, one topic that you cover is that there are essentially two categories of dogs in Nigeria utility dogs um, and pet dogs. So what is the difference between these sort of two categories of dogs? And then how does this give way to friction over the colonial dog tax? Oh, yeah. So, oh, I mean, first, as we know that dogs across cultures are human to most intimate companion. And the issue of dogs can actually provide a... a, a, a a, you know, a clear window to viewing uh, numerous aspects of human-animal relations in significant ways. Um, the the whole idea of um, dividing dogs or you know classifying dogs as pet or as utility or as taxable dog was informed by the nature of relationship that different kinds of drugs dogs based on the ownership, based on their breed and based on the kind of work that they did for their owners. That, those were the factors that shaped this very problematic um, uh, classification of dogs into either pet dogs or, or, or utility dog. But we know exactly when this emerged. It emerged right from, right from the beginning of colonial enterprise, you know, Apart from humans, we should emphasize that dogs were actually the second largest non-human creature to come to Africa. So, and one of the things I try to do in the book is to also emphasize that dogs were also co-colonialist because they were the number one animal that followed, they were the most important animal or the most numerous of animals that followed their masters to the colonies. Very few colonial officers did not come to Africa without dogs. Most of them came to Africa without dogs. And it was this importation of foreign dogs, and of course, based on the symbolic materiality of these dogs, that then began to shape how to classify dogs, whether they should be utility dogs or or whether they should be pet dogs. So the whole idea of a pet dog emerged when the British decided to bring a lot of dogs, foreign dogs. And these dogs, based on the kind of life they lived. They lived mostly in their owner's home. They were not hunting dogs, right? Most of them were not hunting dogs. Most of them were you were had you know were very much into the lives of their of their masters. You know, they had all the privileges of their masters. So another argument I made in many chapters of the book is the ways in which animals can actually assume the identity of their owners and they can also be proxies for negotiating interracial relations and you know not just interracial relations, gendered relations, class relations, ethnicity. There's a way through which the lives of dogs can be used to explain 
a spectrum of human social relations and human animal relations is shifting cultural and of course physical context. So so and so the, the whole idea of a, of, of a pet dog in, in a nutshell was these animals, quote unquote, that were just useless. Useless because they were not walking dogs, right? They were they're not walking dogs, they were not they were not um they were not cat dogs, they were not hunting dogs, they were not uh, sacrificial animals, they were not used as they were not used as animals used for sacrificing to the gods. And and it's problematic because in some cases some of these so-called pet dogs actually perform roles that will be qualified as uh, that will qualify them to be utility dogs. But what is the most problematic component of, of the idea of the pet dog is that only Europeans and upper class Nigerians were believed to have the capacity to own pet dogs. And so what this basically means is that there's a dimension, there's a class and race dimension to the idea of a pet dog. It's about class, it's about race. But utility dog, on the other hand, is a different type of dog. Uh, in the 1950s, Uli Bayer, one of the most important cultural figures in Nigerian post-colonial and, of course, colonial history, he settled in Oshobo for a long time before involving in the global cultural movement, especially African cultural movement, actually wrote an article in which he was trying to decolonize the African dog. And this was in the 50s. The argument was making tied to the whole idea of the utility dog, when Europeans believed that dogs, African dogs were not were useless dogs, Africans don't love their dogs, or Africans hate their dogs, and Africans don't, they're very, very cruel to dogs by actually killing dogs. And so, and though the, the utility dog, on the other hand, are actually dogs that performed clear rules of, of hunting, of guarding, of sacrificial uh, being suffering being. But in, in a nutshell, to cut, you know, in, in a nutshell, what I try to do in the section that talks about um, a, a difficult classification of dogs into utility pets and taxable dogs is to look at the ways in which uh, social structures, economic relations, political identities, race shaped the kind of relationship that humans had with dogs and how dog keeping became an important factor in shaping human relations in significant ways. The next key part um, of the history of dogs that you examine is that of colonial rabies campaigns, which, as you point out, you know, puncture a hole in the colonial ideology of sort of the so-called civilizing mission, um, since often the dogs were treated quite unnecessarily cruelly. Um, you also note that this is a kind of an instance where we see colonial racism having an impact on the animals themselves. Um, so can you elaborate a bit as to kind of how the colonial context shaped rabies campaigns in Nigeria and kind of how does this sort of complement or further our understanding of British colonization? Oh, good. Uh, my book also makes a major contribution in the in medical history of Nigeria, you know, all the existing scholarship on Nigeria's uh, medical history mostly focus on uh, on human sickness or human illness. Um, yet, you know, most of the diseases that shaped colonial construction of hygiene were actually zoonotic diseases. You know, zoonotic diseases are diseases transmitted from animals to humans, you know, from malaria to influenza, from leprosy to tuberculosis. You know, animals have shaped the epidemiology of diseases in significant ways. And unfortunately, the current scholarship of medical history 
just couldn't find a way to come to terms with this. So much of the current scholarship on medical history are not accounting for the interface between human and animal health, even though most of what we define as human health actually have significant implication on human interface with animals. So by placing animals at the center of disease and disease control, you know, my book um, asks new questions, questions about the unbroken relationship between humans and animals. And, uh, you know, you know and, and, and that is one of the ways to look at it. So rabies was a zoonotic disease, but it was about dogs as much as about animals. And in controlling disease, in controlling rabies among humans, it shaped what humans think about the dog. And in controlling the, the, the problem or the disease among dogs, the humans have to be placed in, in, in the right context. So, so, and so what I would like to emphasize within in, in this section and within the kind of question asked is a critical reconsideration of the role that animal health played in human history and human medicine. I call for a much more integrated scholarship on medical history that allows us to account for the interface between humans and animals. This is not because, this is not, that, uh, I mean, this is important, apparently, like, as I emphasize, because most of these diseases that we study in humans were actually zoonotic diseases. And that if we place animal health at the center of uh, human health, we can see a lot of things that we are unable to see at the moment. All three of your initial chapters um, bring up the development of veterinary medicine in Nigeria, and you've sort of already um, given mention of it a bit earlier. Um, so how did the demands of the cattle industry, horses, donkeys, and dogs um, all shape veterinary medicine? Uh, and another way of, of putting this is, you know, how do the histories of these four different animals in colonial Nigeria help us better understand the history of Nigerian veterinary medicine? Good. Uh, so I, actually, my, you know, my book can actually be read as an introduction to the issue of veterinary medicine in Nigeria. And it's deliberate. It's deliberate. I deliberately wanted, I deliberately wrote the book to speak to a body of knowledge that has not attracted significant attention. You know, you know, the need to see veterinary medicine as a field on its own, the issue of vet medicine. And to see not just on its own, but in relation to other bodies of knowledge. So that's why I try to include a lot of materials that can serve as the basis of uh, further exploration. But instead of mainly writing veterinary medicine into Nigerian history, I ask for, you know, a systemic approach, you know, approach that allows us to see the continuity and change in the interface between humans and animals. You know, if it is possible to write about human medicine without reference to animals, or animal history or animal health, it's impossible to write about veterinary medicine without human medicine. And that is why uh, vet, vet medicine tend to be much more encompassing because it's about animals as much as about humans. But human medicine can actually focus only on humans and not say anything about animals. And going back to the point I made in the previous response to your question is that a systemic scholarship that places animals at the center of human history and that places humans at the center of animal history allows us to see so many underexplored aspects of Nigeria's past in a much 
more systemic, in a much more systemic way. So, 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 and that is the way I would. That is the way I would. Uh, I, I, I was thinking about that section of the book uh, when I was writing it. I call for attention to medic to to Nigerian veterinary medicine, history of Nigerian vet medicine, to scholars. So I'm asking historians to pay attention to history of vet medicine and to see. And I'm also asking. Uh, historians of medical history to move beyond the narrow confine of human medicine to see the ways in which animal health shaped human health. Um, so now the book takes a sort of a slight detour um, to look at the use of animals in political cartoons in Nigeria during the heyday of nationalism. Um, of course, you know, animals are used to make fun of politicians and political parties in other countries as well. Um, but what about this was unique to Nigeria? Um, another way to put this is sort of, you know, what were the sources or cultural influences for how Nigerian readers would understand or interpret the meanings of animals depicted in political cartoons, you know, during the 1950s? Good. Oh, the, the chapter on art is, I think, and I said this to most whenever I have the opportunity to talk about this book, that the chapter on art is the most difficult chapter to write, partly because, yeah, partly because I was trying to understand how to place animal iconographies in time perspective. I was trying to look at what different animal symbols mean in, in shifting cultural context over time. But thankfully, after I, I was able to consult with a lot of art historians, you know, Muyo, KDG, uh, Sylvester Ogbeche, Dele Jegede, Babatu uh, Delawal, Jimo Jimga, who was teaching at the University of Lagos. So I emailed all of them, Bukola uh, Badigeshin, I emailed all of them and asked them very straightforward question. How do artists write about animals? It's kind of a theoretical question. Uh, I, I wanted to understand the theoretical considerations that shaped how artists uh, write about symbols. And of course, specifically, if there's anybody of knowledge or a kind of a framework to write animal iconographies into history. Uh, to be sure, I'm not the first scholar to write about the works of Akinola Lashiko. Akinola Lashiko is this guy, this artist who uh, who pioneered cartoon making in Nigeria. You know, started doing cartoons in the colonial period. But I am the first to emphasize that animal cartoons were not only his most significant body of art or work, but also the one that introduced significant dimension and discourses to the history and the, uh, to the history of uh, nationalist discourse. So, uh, because Lashiko took animals from their ethnic enclaves to give them a Nigerian identity. So, I came up with the idea of uh, nationalization or Nigerianization of animals. You know, the whole idea, the, the, the ways in which Akinola uh, Lashiko took animals away from their ethnic enclaves and gave them national identity. You know, allowed non-human creatures to assume contrasting identities as powerful or weak, predator or prey, among other you know overlapping identities. And you know, the inexhaustibility of the animal world allowed Akinola Lashiko, 
you know, to stretch his imagination far, you know, far beyond what anyone could actually conceive. You know, his imagination about colonial subjecthood in shifting context. Uh, each category of colonial subjects, you know, whether you know, regardless of gender, regardless of class, religion, power, you know, political affiliation, ethnicity, even race, you know, they all found interesting place in Akinla Lashikon's cartoons. And the scope of his imagination was so wide and, you know, and the depth, the intensity was so huge. And in doing all this, Akinla Lashikon is able to portray the contradictions of colonial power. On the one hand, he would write or he would draw about, he would draw different animals into the histories of relationship between colonial government and the and Nigerians, occasionally it would depict different kinds of animals within the context of uh, of subnationalism, within the context of ethnic nationalism of the 1950s, within the context of inter-party relations between the regions, the eastern region, the western region, and the northern region. Occasionally, it would actually disaggregate, right? You know, disaggregate the identities of these animals by looking at specific forms of relations within each political party or even within each ethnicity. So, in Akinola Shekon's imagination, the Yorubas are not or were not a monolithic ethnic identity. You know, the Yoruba of Lagos, they were different from the Yoruba of Ibadan, the Yoruba of, uh, of of the northern end of the region that we call Yoruba land geographically today. The point in emphasis is this. Animals were used symbolically to speak to the questions of nationalism, to the questions of colonial domination, to the question of rivalry for control of political power in Nigeria. And for me, these bodies of work represent some of the most creative and innovative symbolic and iconographic representation of animals in Nigerian history. No scholar, no artist at any point in time have done what Akinola Sheka did with his work. No one. It's, 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 it's animal symbolism remains the most indelible representation of the contradictions of colonial subjecthood. The most, you know, breathtaking interpretation of the rivalries within different ethnicities in Nigeria, between one ethnic group and the other, and no scholarship, I mean, no kind of artistic representation is or as man has actually moved in any way close to Akinola Lakshakon's representation of inter-ethnic rivalry in the 1950s and the 1960s. Like I said earlier, that chapter was the most difficult to write because I am not a trained art historian. And with the help of established art historians and my own critical independent reading of animal symbolism, I was able to come up with what I think gives a lot of respect to the creativity of Lashikon. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
right. Um, the next few chapters look at different aspects of animal rights in colonial Nigeria. Um, so sort of thinking about them as sort of, you know, legal subjects, you know, whether it be um, nature conservation, zoos, or anti-animal cruelty laws. One theme um, of cro across all of these chapters is that children were often the targets for various efforts by the colonial state and environmental and animal rights groups. Um, so perhaps could you start by describing kind of some of these efforts, um, but also reflect on how effective they were at kind of promoting generational change? Yeah, so the, the, oh, the involvement of children in the narratives of cruelty to animals actually tied directly to pre-existing assumptions of race and psychological development. Because the British historically believed that African children were innocent, as just the similar narrative that you hear in other parts of the world. And their innocence allows them to treat animals kindly. And that because animals were innocent and children were innocent, children and animals, in the framing of innocence, actually share similarities, similarities of innocence. So during the 1930s, when a debate about cruelty to animals intensified, the British made dedicated uh, steps to increase the affection that children would have for animals, even though there, there were a lot of pre-existing assumptions that animals, that children would naturally love animals. Some of these steps include uh, didactic literatures, you know, manuals that aimed to teach children to be good or better lovers of animals. Uh, sometimes uh, literature, sometimes uh, competition. Children were encouraged to write essays on how they would treat animals. Uh, sometimes much of these things were going on within uh, Boy Scout activities, girls' good activities, and and we also, of course, connected to the main infrastructure of early childhood education. You know, some of us who, are, who were born in the post-colonial era will still grew up learning some of these uh, poems that we recite early in the morning during school assembly. You know, poems like "Yes, let's those are poems that reminded children that animals are vulnerable and you should not kill animals. You know, vulnerable animals because if you cannot, if you cannot create them, only God that it's only God that can that can create them. So the point in emphasis is that colonial education found significant expression in the notion that in order to raise colonial subjects that would be kind to animals, focus or attention should be given to childhood education. It was strategic uh, in ways that uh, indoctrinated children to love animals. But this indoctrination, which was carefully curated in poems, in activities, in competition, in Girls' Guild and Boys' Guide, also found existing expression in the notion that children and animals share similarities, pre-developmental similarities, no pre-psychological dissimilarities, that they're innocent. And animals and children were innocent because they were just not as intelligent as adults. And, and that's one, one of the one of the parts of the book that I found really very fascinating. Another theme that, that comes up in these chapters is that 
Just like many Nigerian elites adopted British dress, um, converted to Christianity, learned English, uh, and so on, a number of Nigerian elites also kind of adopted British ideas of animal welfare and conservation. Um, so what's one example of this and how does this kind of expand our understanding of elite Nigerian culture and daily life under colonialism? Yeah, I've always worked with this idea of selective modernity. I did it in the in my book on, on sexuality. And the whole idea of selective modernity is the ways in which the elites, educated elites, selectively appropriated elements of Western culture that they found uh, rewarding or that they found um, uh, satisfying or that they found uh, that's not conflicting with their own idea, with their own status and positionalities on core issues of, of running colonial state. This is just a basic and simple definition of selective modernity. And you see, I don't think there's any component of colonial African encounter that does not find some expressions in selective modernity, whether it's in education or it's in dress or it's in, uh, it's in religion or it's in self-fashion. We see ways in which African elites uh, selectively determine which element of Western ideology or practices they would take while also kicking against the, 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 the remaining. So within the context of animal laws and cruelty, we see that a lot. Actually, the most important uh, animal protection body in Nigeria, the Nigeria Society for the Prote- Protection of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, was actually spearheaded by Nigerians. So you know, Nigerians were actually the, among the first, the first, of, first group of people to fight against the cruelty to animals. And so, this should remind us that some of the modernist practices in colonial Nigeria were actually not even introduced by the British. Some of them were introduced by Nigerian, educated, educated Nigerians who thought that fellow Nigerians were not civilized because some of their character does, you know, does not align with normative notions of civility. And so we see that a lot in credit to animals, and that's what I did in the book. I detailed the involvement of educated Nigerians in the fight against animal maltreatment. And I looked at the contradictions in, in, in these activities. And part of the contradiction is that uh, if the British are unable to guarantee basic rights for Nigerians, why do you expect them to protect human animals? And why do you think animal protection should be more important than human? And th- that was the debate that was going on. Much of the pushback against animal protection laws by Nigerians where we found expressions in the whole idea that why should we be talking about animal protection when human protections cannot be guaranteed, you know? Mm-hmm. Now that we've sort of gone through the book, <clears throat> one topic that comes up at several moments is how Nigerians have often been divided on their approach to animal-human relations um, or in their kind of understandings of animal rights based on their religious affiliation. Um, Given that Nigeria has long been somewhat evenly divided numerically between Muslims and Christians, you know, along with uh, pockets of different indigenous religions. Um, How has this impacted, you know, how has, you know, religion sort of impacted the history of animals in modern Nigeria? 
Um, and I guess another way of putting this is kind of what are some different examples from your research that demonstrates that the history of animals in Nigeria is kind of shaped by its religious landscape? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, today, one of the interesting things about the debate over the Earthsmen is actually it's also about animals, uh, you know, whether it is the real animals or the metaphoric or this animal. Um it has significant element. And going back to the first element of the part of the question was, you know, it's difficult to explain many things in modern Nigeria without factoring in religion and, of course, ethnicity. Uh, because some of the debate that shaped, uh, that shaped conflict in most cases, when you look at it, they had significant ethnic dimension. And, of course, Religion is an important element of ethnicity. Uh, during the colonial period, we saw the ways in which the British believed that the Northerners were bad. They treated animals badly because they were not as civilized as the as the Southerners. And much of the the, the much of the the move to criminalize cruelty to animals were actually, like I said earlier, uh, spearheaded by Christians from the south. And there was a point in time when the British began to see the Christians in the South as the most important factor in the civility, in the debate of animal civility. And because the Northerners were not civilized, you know, quote unquote, according to the British, that was why they treated animals badly. So that is one example of the ways in which uh, religion shaped uh, conflicting notions of civilization their assumption. But we also need to remember, as I wrote in the book, that actually, even in northern Nigeria among the Muslims, we need to put this in context. During the 19th century, the the jihadists actually used uh, part of the accusation that the accusation against the indigenous non-Muslim population in modern northern Nigeria is that they were not treating animals right. In fact, there's so many literary, artistic, and even Quranic passages that points to a particular point in time when the Muslim jihadists thought that in order to introduce Islam to the population, they had to change how the local people were non-Muslims were treating animals. So there's actually a provision, and that's what I did in the book, multiple provisions, multiple passages of the Quran and Hadith that talks about how to treat animals rightly, how to be very kind to animals. I reproduced some of these passages in the books. Uh, I, I printed some of the passages of the Quran in the book. However, because Western, Western uh, uh, civilization was always arrogant towards Islam, Western civilization did not account for Islamic jurisprudence or perspective on cruelty to animals. Not basically because of the old again the assumption that the northerners are not civilized, the Muslims and northerners are not civilized compared to the southerners from south. So the point in emphasis is that when we put religion at the center of uh, of debates about normative character, normative behavior, what we see are conflicting results about human relations, and in this case, human animal animal relations. Um, So we've been talking about the colonial period mostly, uh, but in your conclusion, you consider the kind of the animal in post-colonial Nigeria. Uh, What's one or two examples about how the colonial history of animals in Nigeria has kind of continued 
to influence animals in the post-colonial period. So in the epilogue of the book, I started with Ruga, rural grazing area. There was this particular project by the government, I think about three years ago to establish, I think three or four years ago, I'm not very sure, I think 2019. It was a proposal to introduce rural grazing area uh, for for cattle herders in in different parts of the country, and this was this proposal was met with um, a lot of uh, controversy and pushback, largely from 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 most states in southern Nigeria. And what I tried to do at the beginning of the epilogue is to remind us that there was a point in time in Nigerian history that animals could only be raised in certain parts of the country. Animals could only be raised. In uh, in a protected area, that open grazing was actually not part of the deal when cattle capitalism or when trade cattle began in the colonial period. You know, you know, open grazing was not was not allowed. You can only raise animals in certain areas. Animals could not just move across any territories they like. There were there were cattle routes or cattle roads. You know, dedicated roads where animals or cattle were permitted to travel from the northern part of Nigeria all the way to the Niger Delta. Elaborate road network made for cattle alone. When we don't respect historical antecedent, we create the impression that our own inventions are original. But unfortunately, there's nothing actually original about most contemporary inventions, which are mostly adaptation of the whole. But what history does is to help us understand not only the evolution of what we consider to be innovative today, but the flaws and the limitations of the past. And so Ruga will have, if Ruga was able to connect with a particular historical moment in Nigeria where there was no open grazing, where animals have dedicated places of, of feeding, where there was a cattle road, then we can begin to ask significant questions that allows us to adapt historical practices to meet contemporary 21st century realities. There's just no way we can engage with the question of earth without the animals. And so what I try to do in the epilogue, and of course throughout the book, is to position animals at the center of, the de- of debates that look simple. Debates that appears to be generated only within the human population. When, when we put animal lives and experiences at the center of some of these debates, what we get is something much more encompassing, much more elaborate, much more complicated. Uh, you know, narratives that allows us to account for the, um, for the entanglement, for the, for, the, for the deep-seated relationship that existed between humans and animals. And that also challenges us to revisit what constitutes history. And so that is why, for me, the, story, the, the crisis of the Earthsmen in Nigeria is not just a human crisis, it's about animals. And if there's no animal, whether we're talking about the practical or the real cattle or the symbolic or the metaphoric cattle, the cattle in different ways uh, you know, uh, shows up in the narratives of security narratives of violence and because the cattle shows up consistently in the narratives of nation building i think scholars whether historians or colleagues in other fields should begin to pay significant attention to the place of animals in human history 
In the conclusion of your book, um, you note that your research um, suggests many potential avenues for future research by historians. Um, so what are some examples of topics that you hope scholars will soon explore? Yeah, thank you. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this um, interview, I designed the book to be a period monograph, you know, a monograph that would give birth to narrower specific scholarship on different categories of animals. So I am expecting scholars to pick specific animals and do detailed scholarship on them. I'm also expecting scholarship that goes beyond the confine of subjectivity to develop new paradigms to study the interface between humans and animals in history. I'm expecting specific and narrower scholarship that is more that is more or uh, that places the question of gender much more much more effectively in the narratives of human-animal relations. Uh, for example, I want something that is focused only on on children. So, you know, like I said, most a lot of, a lot of section on the books engages with the history of children within the context of animal cruelty and animal, uh, and animal lives. But I would actually want a dedicated scholarship, let's say a chapter of a book or an article on children, science, you know, economics, class. So... Um, I, I I I look forward to reading something much more inclusive, inclusive knowledge. The other side part of it, which I should also re-emphasize, is that the book asks new questions about what actually constitutes history. You know, you know what makes a particular event a human history. You know. My book does not challenge the conventional definition of history as humans' past activities. What it does is to include animals in the making of human past. Is to argue that animals carried out activities that formed the basis of major turning points in Nigerian history. To say that certain histories can be written predominantly from the lens of animals because they were actions, behaviors, and activities that animals perform. At the same time, we can write the entanglement, that is the histories of relationship between humans and animals, you know, together. So whether we are writing specific history that focuses only on animals, or we're writing human animals in their entangled form, or the human-animal relations, the way I did it in the book, what's more important is for us to ask new questions about the indispensable roles that animals shaped in shaping the trajectories of major turning points in history. And so what I did throughout the book is to emphasize that by placing animals at the center of Nigerian history, we begin to see old stories in new forms. And these old stories then help us to ask new questions about the, 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 the interesting uh, relationship between humans and animals. The last but not the least is colonial subjecthood. You know, throughout the history of historical writing about Africa, especially the history of colonial history of Africa itself, when, be, when scholars began to write about colonialism or the lives of colonial subjects, it, it seems like only humans can be colonial subjects. And what my book has just done is to prove that animals were also colonial subjects. And I conceptualize 
colonial subjects would, not necessarily as the similarities between humans and animals under colonial rule, but distinct characteristics of animals that allowed them to fit the profile of subjecthood. You know, labor, rights, uh, obligations, punishments, symbolic materiality, uh, enforcement of rules and regulations, punishment, these are core features of colonial capitalism, colonial subjecthood. And when you look at the issues of human-animal relations, and if you look at the activities and actions and independent actions of animals, you see that all these actions, including, like I said, labor, obligation, respect, punishment, orderliness, tranquility, violence, all this element of human's colonial subjecthood can be found in animal colonial subjecthood. But I am not simply, and I have to re-emphasize this, I am not suggesting that human's colonial subjecthood is exactly like animal's colonial subjecthood. No, no. What I did is to look at different types of animals and look at specific forms of their engagement that allows them to have different forms of subjecthood. So colonial subjecthood is not a and it's not an homogeneous form of engagement or encounter. Rather, it was shaped by the different species of animals, their habitat, their symbolic materiality, their threats to existing notion of orderliness and tranquility. If ethnicity, religion, race, location shape the pattern of human-animal, human relationship with the colonial state, I argue that habitat, threat, uh, ecology, uh, symbolic materiality, labor, shape the form of animal-colonial subjecthood. Uh, well, Dr. Adirinto, uh, we've taken up enough of your time, but before we end, I'd like to ask one more question, and that's, what are you working on currently? Oh, thank you so much. So, um, for the past three years, I started this project in December 2019. It's a project on popular culture with specific reference to Fuji. So, I'm writing a book, and at the same time, producing a documentary. I have I conducted uh, five months of field work on the project in 2020. Then in 2021, I was in Nigeria for, I think, six months. Then this year, I was in Nigeria for two months. So I think combined maybe 13 months of field work already. So that's what I'm working on now is a book of Fuji. A popular Fuji popular culture among the Yoruba of Nigeria and the global African diaspora. All right. Well, that sounds um, really interesting, and I've enjoyed seeing little snippets um, on Facebook of your of your documentary work. Thank you. Um, all right. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Uh, thank you for having me.